This is the Living Vertizano podcast, brought to you by The Church at Riverstone, a fellowship of the Church of the Nazarene in Madera, California. Our episode today focuses on Jesus' arrest and his subsequent appearance before the Sanhedrin, found in Matthew 26, 47-68. Together, we will be discussing the importance of preparation in order that we might live as Jesus lived. Hi, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Natasha. I'm Brittany. I'm Derek. And we are the Living Vertizontal Podcast, uh, back with you this week to continue our journey through Matthew. Uh, we've been working through Matthew chapter 26 for a little bit now, as it is a, a pretty substantial chapter in Matthew. Uh, but as a quick reminder, last week we specifically looked at verses 31 through 46, uh, which examined uh, Jesus's prediction of Peter's denial, and subsequently his time in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, as he wrestled uh, in prayer, uh, talking to his father, um, ultimately working through this fight for faith and and trusting in in the will of his father. And as a result of that, um, we ultimately landed on the importance of us also um, aligning our will to his. Um, just as Jesus aligned his will to his father's. This week, we're going to be moving on um, to verses 47 through 68, still in Matthew 26, uh, where we're going to be examining two different scenes um, that are associated with the Passion Week. First, we're going to be looking at Jesus's arrest, and then we will be looking at his appearance before the Sanhedrin. Um I believe we have Natasha reading for us today. So would you read Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 68? Sure. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man arrest him. Going at once... To Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, 
I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you. Thank you for reading that for us, Natasha. Um, Before we jump into having a a conversation on what we're seeing here, I just want to go back and and kind of make a statement on the the transition that's occurring here, as I alluded to in the introduction. And that is, you know, just before this conversation or uh, this scene of the arrest, um, ver- verse 47 starts with this while he was still speaking Judas. And so just before that, Jesus was speaking to the other disciples saying, it's time to get up. Like we've been praying, you guys have been sleeping. I've been wrestling with like my will versus God's will. And I'm submitting it to God's will. So I'm resolved on that. So everybody stand up because my betrayer is here. Let's go. And so that's what he was still speaking as Judas is coming on the scene. And so I just kind of, even though the two conversations we're going to have today or the two scenes we look at today are a little bit more disjointed, um, I wanted to make sure we held together this first scene of the arrest with where we were last week with the Garden of Gethsemane. And so um, with that, let's let's jump into our conversation. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? Uh, what questions do you have? So the first thing that that I observe here is it comes from verse 48, where we see uh, Judas with his mob that's been sent by their chief priest and the elders. And so um, he he lets them know that the one that I kiss is the man, that's the one that they need to arrest, that is Jesus. And so he goes before Jesus and, and he says, greetings, Rabbi, and kisses him. And so it's, it's kind of interesting because greetings— in, in Hebrew is, is shalom, and so this would have meant peace. And mm. so, you know, he's not really coming to bring peace, right. but he's trying to keep up appearances, and I think that was talked about Sunday. Like, he's still trying to keep up appearances before others. And then he kisses Jesus, and so a kiss is something that's not typically done in public in this time, in Jesus's culture, but, it, but it's something that would signify respect and and like reconciliation and so someone who comes saying peace and and acts as if he's showing respect trying to keep up appearances is going to be the one who really delivers Jesus mm-hmm. over to be arrested and and eventually crucified but Jesus's response i think is something that we should all desire to have and he responds by calling him friend Jesus doesn't see doesn't see him as the betrayer. He sees him for who he can be. Hmm. And so I think that that's, uh, you know, just another example of Jesus trying to live out this 
this different kind of kingdom before his disciples and all those in attendance that are watching what's unfolding. As you were talking about um, Judas, and and so seeing this from Judas's, I guess, perspective, I think like we, we've talked about with Peter before, I feel like it's all too easy for us to say, well, we, we align most with Jesus here. Like we, you know, and focus on that piece as opposed to evaluating ourselves honestly for how we behave like Judas. And, um, you mentioning this brought it back to my mind because it was something that the youth brought up at our table on Sunday and the conversation kind of circled around this idea that what things do we do in our attempts to save face Mm. that betray Jesus, either who he's called us to be, how he's called us to live, how he's called us to love. Um, And I think when we ask ourselves that question honestly, I mean, we walk away with a whole lot of things that we've got to re-surrender to Jesus mm-hmm. um, and ask for his help um, to overcome like our human desire to be accepted and to matter. And then obviously the friend part is a fantastic reminder of how to see people through Jesus's eyes. Um, to constantly look at everyone as friend, the person who cuts you in line, you know, the person who's being difficult over the phone, the person who cuts you off as you're trying to get onto highway 41 from Avenue 12 and everybody's trying to get in the right hand turn lane. That's oddly specific. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps. I think it's also that this, this like Jesus calling Judas friend is a reminder to how he responds to us as well. Like you were just talking about how, like how often are we in the place of Judas where we are doing things to betray our relationship with Jesus to save face in front of other people. And probably most of us would not think that most of what we do is that unless we sat back and actually gave it serious thought. But then when we come face to face with that reality, the really incredible thing is the very person that we were betraying with those words or those actions is still reaching out to us and calling us friend. Like he's not looking to condemn us in that moment when we ourselves are probably recognizing our condemnation. And I think, well, as you guys have both already said, I think there is a lot to learn from the model that Jesus demonstrates here. Um, and not, not just in this particular statement of calling him friend, but even as we go on, like these two stories have, are, are jam packed. These two scenes are jam packed with some pretty lofty things to strive for. So, um, it's, it's, it's so God that we're talking about this because, um, this week I, um, had an interview with a young lady, um, to work, um, for me. And the question that I asked was not a question that I normally ask. I have a set of questions that I normally stick to, but this one was specifically, um, how do you try to work effectively with a difficult person? 
And her answer was very profound. And she's, she's a very, she's young. She's probably in her mid twenties, but it was just so profound and very much in line with what Jesus is doing here. And her response was, I can only be responsible for my actions. I Mm. cannot, I'm not, they're responsible for theirs and I'm responsible for mine. So my reaction is always going to be kindness. My, my reaction is always going to be grace and peace and that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He right. his, he's not saying, "Well, how dare you? How dare you do that to me?" He's saying, "Do what you have to do, friend?" Mm. And I think that's um, absolutely what we should strive for. Well, and I, I think if like we like recall back to where Jesus just spent time with the Father in the Garden, like he came from this place of preparation, and even as we like see with who we assume to be Peter, cutting off an <laughs> ear, like. He was asleep in the garden. He, he he wasn't spending the time to prepare, so his reaction was different than Jesus's reaction. Jesus spent time with the Father. He spent time preparing. He called Judas friend. Peter fell asleep. He came out, swords blazing. He's like, "I'm gonna like take everybody out," <laughs> and Jesus has to remind him, "This is not the kind of kingdom that mm-hmm. you're. This is not what you're signing up for." Like, if you thought you were signing up to, like, fight a battle with a sword, like, I've tried to tell you, but I'm going to tell you again. That's that's the wrong weapon to use. Well, and I feel like that, like that goes perfectly in line with what you were sharing, Brittany, about this interview. Like, Jesus is saying, you are responsible for your response. And that's it. And And even in the face of the fact that all of these people have come out with clubs and swords, even though convention would like indicate that, that Peter should, or the disciple, right? We assume it's Peter, (laughs) but even though convention would say that this disciple should draw a sword because there are people there with swords and clubs and you should meet like with like Jesus says, not so in my kingdom, this is not what it's about. And I think you you hit it on the head, Derek, when you talk about how like Jesus spent time in preparation and brought his will into alignment with his father. And Peter spent time sleeping and didn't didn't do that that fight of bringing his will in alignment with the father. And you see it in the way that they respond with the same situation. I think it speaks volumes to this conversation of forgiveness mm-hmm. that we're about to get really, really deep into. But in our lives, as you pointed out, convention says you hold the grudge. You don't have to forgive them. You can love them, but you don't have to like them, right? We we should spend time not with them and avoid them as much as possible. You know, you don't have to be in a relationship with them, but yeah, just because we have to love them doesn't mean you have to be their fishing buddy. Exactly. And yet Jesus, as we've pointed out, looks at Judas and says, Oh friend. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a hard, this is a hard thing because it spills into every messy relationship. Right that every person's ever encountered. And when I think about as I give my children advice for how to deal with conflict in their lives, um, it gets even harder 
um, because you want to protect, like that's your, that's your natural instinct. And really Jesus has called me and he's called them to a life of forgiveness, no matter the personal cost and to trust that Jesus will advocate on their behalf and fight for them. And, uh, it's a, I don't know. It's, it's a difficult struggle. I think that we have to continually be reminded of. And I think, I think, uh, as you kind of move past the initial like disciple cutting off the ear, Jesus direct uh, addressing that directly. And you see him turn to essentially the, the crowds and, and address them. You see him continue you see him use this as an opportunity for further teaching, right? Where, so he had that like hands-on practical application teaching to the disciple who cut off the ear and said, this isn't, this isn't the way that, that we live. And he even addresses the mob that is there to arrest him in the same way. And he's like, haven't I been among you teaching? you know, I'm not leading a rebellion. Like what you guys are doing, the way you guys are, are coming at me right now with the show of force that you have, like, you know, that's not what I'm doing, what I've been doing. I I haven't been trying to overthrow you. Like, yeah, there's been some confrontation that has occurred, like in, in their understanding of scripture, their understanding of prophecy, their understanding of what God is calling them to. But it's not been like this competitive, like Jesus trying to fight for the position of high priest at somebody else's expense. And so he's even calling that out to those who are arresting him. Like you didn't have to bring all this. You could have just said, we're here to arrest you. And I would have come because that's the life that I've lived. It's as if they fear the potential consequence of Jesus being a true king. Like mm-hmm. they're afraid of of what they may lose. We've talked about it a lot about the fear of the that positional power and and losing that. And it seems to be like this is the nearing the climax of that fear. Well, and I just think that if they believe that Jesus believes himself erroneously to be the Messiah, then the Messiah from everything they've been taught is going to be a fighter. He is going to come at them with force and swords and chariots. And, um, and so they better be prepared if they're going to take on the, the, a man claiming to be the Messiah because him behaving as the Messiah looks like this. So they're really wrestling with and struggling with the same thing as the, as the disciples. And so that brings us to this last statement in, uh, in this first scene, which is then all the disciples deserted him and fled. I think it's very interesting that this scene opens with the betrayer and it closes with 11 additional betrayals. I mean, again, last week we talked about, last week and two weeks ago, I mean, it, it started at the at the Last Supper when we had this conversation about how, 
like Jesus identifies that there is going to be this one who is going to betray him. But then he also makes a statement that all of them are going to fall away. Like all of them are ultimately going to betray him. They come back. We, we say that, but like, this is actually where it happens, right? All of them, all 12 right here in this scene, they've had, maybe they've had scheming like Judas leading up to this point. Maybe they've had denial like the rest of them leading up to this point, but all of them in this moment betray the Lord that they were following. And I feel like, man, if Jesus would not have been preparing as he was before this point, this would have been one of those like moments where it would have been very difficult to move beyond. All of them except Peter at this point. Well, Peter had, had deserted him. Oh, but then he came back? Well, he like found yeah. his way back to where they were. Yeah. He had just, he'd take, followed he him took at off. a distance. Yeah. So he followed him in, a, in such a way that he didn't want to be associated with him. He followed him to try to save face. That actually brings up a really interesting conversation, I think, in its own right. The fact that Peter followed, you said Peter followed him at a distance to save face. And when I think about the Christian walk, I think there's probably a lot of us who maybe are currently or have at one point in our lives followed at a distance to save face. And so I think, again, I feel like we can identify with the disciples a lot more than, than part, we'd like. Part of me wonders if... Peter following from a distance is him still holding out hope that he's this conquering king. Like there's this, like, I don't want to miss it. If he like suddenly just like, like takes everybody out and wipes everybody out and he fulfills what I, you know, I've heard about. (laughs) So part of me is almost like, and I brought this up Sunday at our table. Like, I wonder if that was part of him, like laying back, like if something happens, I want to see it. I've seen him do all these other things, so I'm, I'm like holding out hope. I mean, he has he's he's not obviously right up there with Jesus, so there is this like hesitation. But part of me wonders, like Peter has FOMO. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that could be real. I mean, I'm not trying to say that that's what's really happening, but I think that could be real. That he's just hoping so much that he fulfills what he desired Christ to be. That. Like that he sees it, he doesn't want to miss that if it does happen. It's funny. My my version says he went in and sat with the guards and waited to see how it would all end. Like mm-hmm. Jesus had been telling him how it's going to end. But like you said, Derek, maybe he's holding out hope that something will happen. And so while he's sitting there waiting to see how it all all end or waiting to see what the outcome is gonna be, uh we see this exchange that occurs. Um, I guess maybe exchange is probably not the best word to say until the very end of this scene, but you see this uh, essentially like examination that occurs between the officials and Jesus. And just like in the garden at his arrest, Jesus 
sat there silent. And I mean, if we think about all of the context leading up to this point, if we think about his time in the garden, maybe it would be most appropriate to say that he remained silent out of obedience to his father as he, well, didn't want to say anything that he didn't hear his father saying. As you say that, the the Sanhedrin was actually kind of doing the opposite. They were actually operating outside of their, even their scope of practice because right. death wasn't even something that was supposed to be part of their area. And they were trying to drum up false charges um, on Jesus or false accounts, false witnesses. And so while he's trying to be obedient to what Jesus asks him to do, they're kind of going outside and like going, as a term Brittany uses all the time, scope of practice. They were going beyond their scope of practice of what what is normally expected out of the Sanhedrin to try to bring death upon Christ. And they even go on to to follow Old Testament practice by bringing two witnesses mm-hmm. um, before to to bring a, you know accounts of what Jesus has done. So this is something that I struggle with. Um, the whole trying to defend myself mm-hmm. um, when people say things or do things, and I have a hard time keeping my mouth shut. But to think that Jesus is being accused of things falsely and he, his punishment, and he knows his punishment is going to be death. He still keeps his mouth shut. He still is obedient. That makes the things that I deal with seem very insignificant mm-hmm. in comparison. Mm-hmm. It's not until um, the high priest invokes the name of the father, right? He says... Mm-hmm. Under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's not until he essentially invokes his father that Jesus then says, okay, now's the time to respond. And it's not, I am, like, it's not this, this overpowering response, uh, this, this show of force. It's just, you have said that it was so. And then he lets them know what's going to happen going forward. And again, even in his response, like even when he finally does open his mouth, he isn't defending himself. He's answering the question and then moving on. It's not a defense. Because you would think that like a defense would look something more like, uh, yes, I am the son of God. And as the son of God, like this is what should happen. And, and, you know, I, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Like it, 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 a defense tries to convince people to not go the direction that they are going. And he's not even defending himself. He's just answering the question. He's actually acting toward their salvation, right? right. In hopes that these, the, his, the specific words and phrases that he's using, which, come from Psalms and Daniel, like our fulfillments of prophecies for the messianic King, hoping that some of these worms, yeah, will hang hang with them and that they'll be saved. So Natasha, what you said about his response, pointing them to salvation, you know, Jesus is being accused of, of blasphemy. 
he's having people come up and give false testimony against him. And he remains silent. And when he does speak, he's pointing them to salvation. That is such a, something that I I feel like we all probably can take and know that our obedience to be silent and even in our obedience to speak, that our words point others to Jesus, that our words point to life and to, to a life that is more abundant, a life that is with the Father. I feel like these two passages show a, a shift in like the attitude of Christ. Um, you know, he's went from, you know, earlier on in Matthew, he talked a great deal about the heart and, you know, trying to help transform the heart of those that he had the opportunity to speak to. And, and here more recently, toward the end of Matthew, he's talked a lot about preparation. Um, and then it kind of climaxes with his time spent in Gethsemane. And now this is what obedience looks like. This is obedience lived out. And so, you know, it's almost like his he his obedience equals like this determination to follow the will of the Father. And it doesn't take a lot of words like, He's not trying to defend anything because he knows like what the father is asking of him. And how often do I try to defend myself, even when I know what Jesus wants me to do? And I'm still like, well, you know, I'm trying to fight this battle that, that I don't have to fight. And it's essentially that seems how he he's moved from this, his obedience, just being this place of determination to accomplish the will of the father. Mm-hmm. And, I don't know. I, like that was something that came to me earlier today. I was taking a walk and just like mulling over this. And I know that Jesus loves me. I don't ever question that. I recognize that the cross is a symbol of love and forgiveness and all these things. Don't I don't question that. But I have this new like perspective that the cross is Christ's obedience to the Father. It's not all about me. Part of it is about me but it's not all about me. And when I make it that, like I'm making the gospel something that it's not entirely all about. Mm. And so like for me, like I have this recognition that I desire the the obedience of Christ and this determination to do what the, what the Father desires, no matter what it costs. And like I desire to have that resolve. Like I'm not saying that I'm at that place, but I want to be there. Like, I want that to be every day that, like, I recognize this is what God wants, and I'm I'm determined to do it no matter what it costs. And I think this this whole conversation is, is only possible because of the conversation that we had last week about preparation. Mm-hmm. And this this idea that we've talked about, I don't remember how many episodes ago, about like the the fruit and root conversation, like the fruit, Jesus's obedience, Jesus's ability to call um, Judas friend, Jesus's ability to challenge his disciple who is simply defending him to put his sword away, Jesus's ability to stay silent in the face of accusers, Jesus's ability to not yell and come at his own defense, but to simply respond and point people towards salvation. Like all of these things are only possible 
because of his sheer dependence and connection to dependence on and connection to his father period and his insist insistence on that time with his father like Jesus Jesus was disciplined in his time Jesus was dedicated in his time for him it was critical to be rooted in his father and the rest of it was just it is is a working out of that connection it's not that Jesus wakes up and says, I'm going to be doing a bunch of healing today. I'm going to be a kind person in the face of adversity. Like that's not the thing. The thing is this focus on his father and then the rest of it just happens. Not passively. Like he participates in it, but it, it happens as a result of his focus. I think about us and I think about um, the life that we are called to live and for some reason, as I looked at both of these scenes, um, what I the the thing that just glared me in the face was like Jesus's uh, refusal to defend himself, and then subsequently this idea that like that's fruit though of the root that he had, and then First um, John chapter two verse six, like hits me like a ton of bricks because I'm looking at how Jesus lived. And then I think about that, that verse and that verse says, um, I'll turn to it. So I don't like paraphrase cause I don't want Nick's words. Um, but it says, whoever claims to live in him, Jesus must live as Jesus did. And I think often I get, I focus on, well, he didn't fight back. He didn't, um, he told somebody to put a sword away. He went willingly. He didn't argue. But that, again, that's only a result of the way that he lived before this scene, which was in communion with his father. And so I read our passages today and I recognize that this whole preparation conversation still remains, still carries through. We have this call to, to live as Jesus lived. And that doesn't mean try to be holy and perfect and upright and humble on our own. It means to live a life after him in pursuit of him and allow him to work through us to accomplish those things. Be sure to follow the Living Vertizano podcast to stay current on all our new releases. To learn more about the church at Riverstone, visit us at thechurchatriverstone.org.